Today, uh, we are continuing our Revelation series and uh, very excited about that. Uh, this is part two of our Revelation series and, um, sorry, I got the wrong slide up there. And uh, the title is Jesus in the Midst, part two. Today, we're gonna be looking at Revelations chapter four and chapter five. Now, what happens in chapters two and three is Jesus begins to dictate the letters to the seven churches um, Mm, letters to the seven churches um, to John. And uh, so we kind of skipped over chapters two and three. You know, studying the book of Revelation has been like drinking from a fire hose and preaching the book of Revelation is like being the fire hose. And so I find that there's so much, I mean, there's 22 chapters in the book of Revelation. Even if I preached a 22 week series, we still would not get to cover everything in the book of, of Revelation. Um, and so with that being said, um, I chose to focus on the seven visions of Jesus that we find throughout the book, which means that we have to skip from chapter one to chapters four and five that we're gonna look at today. However, uh, I will be teaching through the seven letters to the seven churches that we find in chapters two and three every Wednesday night uh, at our WNP, our Wednesday night prayer meeting. Uh, so from 7.30 to 8, first 30 minutes of each of those prayer meetings I'm gonna be uh, preaching through those and uh, you can get the link uh, on our Facebook wall or you can uh, email info at livinghopecc.us for more information on the link to that prayer meeting. Today we're looking at vision two of Jesus and in order to get through vision two of Jesus we're going to have to go through chapters four and five of uh, the book of Revelation. So forgive me this, this uh, I hope it's not too long. I'm going to try to get us through this, but there's some really important things that we must see uh, in chapter four before we understand the vision of Jesus uh, that we see in chapter five. Uh, what we're gonna discover is that chapters four and five of the book of Revelation belong together. And that uh, these two chapters together, they constitute visions of heaven that clarify our vision of earth. Meaning without what, without what God wants to show us that's transpiring or that has transpired in heaven in chapters four and five of Revelation, we have no means of clearly and correctly understanding what is actually happening in the earth. Um, and so uh, just jumping right in here, John says in chapter four, verse one, after these things, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven and the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me saying, come up here and I will show you things which must take place after this. So there's some uh, peculiarities about this verse. First, first thing that stands out to me in this verse is John says, after these things, uh, after these things, I looked and behold, after what things? So what's happened so far, just to recap, is John is on the island of Patmos because of the testimony of Jesus. He's been banished there by Emperor Domitian and uh, he was in the spirit on the Lord's day, meaning he went to church even though he was all by himself. He was quarantined, he was sheltered in place, he was locked in, he was isolated, but he still went to church on Sunday morning. He didn't have YouTube, all he had was the Holy Spirit. And so he put on his Sunday best and he lifted his hands and he began to worship and have his own worship service all by himself. Why? Because John was a Christian and that's what Christians do, they worship. Uh, and especially on Sunday morning, the Lord's day, Christians go to church and that's what John did. But uh, as he begins to worship, he's in the spirit and he said he heard a voice behind him that was like the sound of a trumpet. And he turns to see the voice and the first thing he sees is seven golden lampstands. And then in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, he sees Jesus. 
He describes him as one like the Son of Man, and, and the, the description of him was just absolutely glorious. He's wearing a robe down to his feet, which is a priestly and kingly robe, a golden sash across his chest, which is both priestly and kingly. His eyes are like a flame of fire. His hair and head are white like wool. Uh, his feet are like furnished bronze refined in the fire. Uh, a sharp two-edged sword proceeds from his mouth and his countenance is like the sun shining in its strength. And this vision of Jesus was so overwhelming that John fell at his feet like a dead man. But Jesus lays his right hand on him and says, John, don't be afraid. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And so John gets up and Jesus says, all right, you're about to hear some stuff and you're about to see some stuff. I need you to get out your pen and paper, or parchment, whatever you had in those days, and I want you to start writing, okay? It's important that you write down the things that I'm getting ready to tell you. This is the these, these are the messages, or this is the message that I'm sending to the church. And then Jesus begins to dictate. Notice his voice still sounds like the trumpet. Jesus is speaking with the voice of a trumpet, and he dictates to John in chapters 2 and 3, the letters to the seven churches, to the church at Ephesus, right, to the church at Smyrna, right, to the church at Pergamum, right, to the church at Sardis, right, to the church at Philippi, uh, Philadelphia, right, and, and Laodicea, and so on. And uh, what happens here in chapter 4 is suddenly Jesus finishes dictating the, letters, the letter to the seventh church, and then abruptly John sees a door open in heaven the lampstands are gone. Jesus is gone. He sees a door open in heaven and he hears the same trumpet voice come out of the door, right? Jesus is no longer speaking to him from, from amidst the seven golden lampstands. Now Jesus is speaking through an open door, a door that's open in the heavens, the same voice. And Jesus calls to him and says, come up here and I will show you things which must take place after this. So first John says, I looked and behold, I perceived and be perceiving. Notice this, I looked and behold, John is saying, I perceived, now you perceive, right? I perceived, now you being perceiving. John says, I looked and perceived, now you look and be perceiving. It reminds us that the book of Revelation is not just about what John saw, but about what God by his spirit is inviting us to see. The question is not, what did John see? The question is, can you see what John saw? The question is, do you have eyes to see and ears to hear? He said, I saw a door standing open. This is the definition of revelation. Revelation is an open door. It is that which was hidden is now revealed. That which was closed is now hidden and is now revealed. And so in exhorting us, to behold the open door, John is inviting us to perceive the hidden things that we're going to find on the other side of that door. And John said that the door was open in heaven. You know, we tend to think of uh, heaven as um, we tend to think of heaven as this high, faraway place. But what John is referring to as not this high, faraway place, but another dimension that is right here right now. You remember the great burden of the preaching of Jesus is that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, right here, among you, within you, like right here. Like that door, I just see this door is open right here. It's not like way up in the sky, like we tend to think of heaven as so far away and we tend to think of God's throne as being so far away and his realm being so far away, so far removed, but John sees a door open right there. 
right there. The door of heaven is right there. It's a dimension. It's a realm that's so close to us, that's right next to us, that's right in our midst. And uh, he sees that this door is open in heaven. And the first voice, like the voice of the trumpet, come up here, the invitation to enter through the door, and I will show you must, what must take place after this. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? After this. After what? Right? Literally, hereafter, after now. I will show you what must take place after what's happening right now. Right? John would have heard Jesus say that the stuff you're about to see is imminent. That is, it's about to happen right after what's happening right now. You see, the book of Revelation is always inviting us to expect the things written in it to transpire within a few minutes. <laughs> like, in, in, in a few minutes, here's what God is getting ready to do. He's, here's what he's fitting to do in a few minutes. Here's what he's about to do. You know, sometimes my wife asks me, she's like, baby, can you clean the floor because you spilled uh, grease on the floor when you were making, when you were cooking and, and it's slippery. And I'll, I'll say, yeah, I, I, I'm about to do it right now. Or she'll say, can you please wash the dishes? I say, yeah, I'm about to do it right now. Could you go get me a glass of water? I'm about to do it right now. As soon as I say, when I say I'm about to do it right now, what I mean is I'm finishing up something. I'm in the process of doing something right now. But as soon as I'm done with what I'm doing right now, I'm about to do it right now. That is my compliance with your request is imminent. It's, it's right at the door. I'm almost there. Literally, Jesus is saying, you know, there's some stuff going on right now, but as soon as that's done, the stuff that you're about to see through this door in heaven, God's about to do it right now. He's, he's, fit, he's fit to. He's fit. This is what God is fit to do. This is what he's about to do. Okay? Um, let's see. Verse 2 Immediately I was in the spirit and behold a throne set in heaven and one sat on the throne. Immediately I was in the spirit. The spirit was his mode of transportation. The spirit lifted him up and carried him through the door. Everything that God shows by revelation is perceived through the agency of the Holy Spirit. The question is, how did he come to be in the spirit? And the question is, how can I come to be in the spirit? Uh, John was in the spirit because he turned toward the voice that spoke to him. The spirit is given to those who turn towards the voice of God. That is, when you hear God speak, do you turn toward his voice? Do you turn away from his voice? Or do you turn against his voice? It's so important. You see, there's three different ways we can turn when God speaks. We can turn toward his voice. We can turn away from his voice. Or we can turn against his voice. We turn toward his voice when we receive by faith and obey. We turn away from his voice when we're apathetic, when we simply ignore it, when we pretend that we didn't hear it, or we treat it as simply you know, academic information instead of God commanding or speaking to my heart. That's turning away, pretending I didn't hear it, not changing my life even in the slightest bit. And then turning against is becoming angry and reacting against God's word and, and, and becoming angry with God and, and reacting and, and responding negatively. The question is, how do you respond when God speaks? Do you turn towards, do you turn away, or do you turn against? The Holy Spirit is given to those who turn towards the voice that speaks. And so as you hear the word of the Lord, the Holy Spirit is granted to you if you simply make a decision, I'm going to turn towards the voice that speaks to me. Okay. Immediately I was in the spirit 
uh, and behold a throne. Actually, let's go back here. And behold a throne set in heaven and one who set one who sat on the throne. The revelation is that the throne of God, the place from which God rules, the kingdom of God, is closer than you could ever imagine. That is, if the Spirit of God were to open the door, you would see it right now from right where you are. You see, things are not as they seem. You know, we look around and we feel like we're living in a world in chaos in which everything has fallen apart and everything has gone haywire. It feels like we are the furthest thing from the control of God that you could imagine. But there's simply a door. And on the other side of that door, there's the throne of God. The first thing he sees is God's reign, God's authority. Sorry, my socks are coming off. God's reign, God's authority, God's throne, God's kingdom. The throne of God is actually the most dominant image in the entire book of Revelation. John speaks of the throne of God 74 times throughout the book. He's not, it's not about the beast, the antichrist, the dragon, the seals, the plagues, but the throne. And the interesting thing is, and myself included, like the questions that we tend to bring with us to the book of Revelation are not about the throne. They're about the beast and the seals and the antichrist. That's the thing that we are so eager to know about. But John says the book is actually about the throne. Set your eyes on the throne. You know, we're living in the midst of a time in which chaos is all around us and things seem out of control. We're living in the midst of a plague. We're living in the midst of fires and smoke and threats and unrest and murders and violence. And in the midst of all of that, John says, behold, a throne. And here's what's crazy. Not just a throne, but one who sat on it. Only one. There's only one on the throne. Only one who's in charge. Why do you worry about uh, the election as if the person who gets elected gets to sit on that throne? Mm -mm. There's only one on the throne. And it's not the president of the United States and it's not NATO and it's not the Democrats and it's not the Republicans, it's not the liberals, it's not the conservatives, it's not QAnon, it's not any of these groups. It is one who sits on the throne and he is God. You know, it boggles my mind. I, I think of this every election cycle, how Christians lose their minds in America. Every election cycle. As if if the right person doesn't get elected, somehow God is going to lose his throne. Somehow, you know, God's plan is going to be completely uh, wiped out if the wrong person uh, gets elected. I want you to know that who gets elected in the United States of America does not change who sits on the throne in heaven. Amen? Somebody needs to say amen. So, and you know what's beautiful is that all throughout the Bible, you see God the Father seated on the throne. Not once do you see him getting up. The fact that he remains seated means that his plan is right on schedule. It means that he is unmoved and unaffected by what happens in history. It means he never looks down and says, oh Lord, I better get up. He stays on his throne. Amen. Now, now, we need to understand also that at the time John wrote this, things were more chaotic in the world than they are now. At the time John wrote this, things were much worse for Christians in the world than they are now. Uh, you want to talk about persecution, we talked about Emperor Domitian, who's the one who banished John to the island of Patmos. Do you realize that in John's day, Emperor Domitian himself had massacred more than 40,000 Christians? And this type of persecution 
had gone all the way back to Emperor Nero in the middle of the century, so it had been about 50 years of this kinds of persecution. Emperor Nero was the guy who was feeding Christians to lions uh, in the Colosseum and in the arenas. He was the guy who was tying Christians to trees in his garden, covering them with tree sap, setting them on fire, and using them as candles. So you're talking about a time that was far more tumultuous, that was far more chaotic than anything that we've had to live through. But in the midst of this, in the midst of this chaos, in the midst of everything seemingly going awry, John is inviting the people of God to behold the throne. Okay, I think I've got to go a little faster here because we, we got to get through this. Uh, verse 3, And he who sat there was like jasper and like a sardius stone. Uh, I'm on the wrong. Yes. And he who sat there was like jasper and like a sardius stone in appearance. Jasper and Sardius. First of all, he uses the word like. When he sees the one who sits upon the throne, all he could say is he was like. He can't say what he is because he's too glorious. He can't see his frame. He can't, he can't say what he is, only what he is like because he's holy. He's sui generis. He's in a category all of his own. Jasper and Sardius stone. Uh, Jasper, both of them are somewhat translucent like glass. Uh, what you see when you look at it depends upon how the light is shining upon it. And uh, both, they tend to be radiantly red and dazzlingly shiny. So when John says he appeared like Jasper and Sardius, he means that he was so glorious that John could not see him clearly enough to make out his distinctive features. He couldn't say this was the color of his hair and this was the shape of his nose. He just saw glory. He just saw, it was like an emerald, like a ruby, like, like seeing the most dazzling uh, jewels that you've ever seen. It was just radiant beauty. Uh, and that's all he could see on the throne. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. The rainbow reminds us of God's promise to Noah. You remember God made the promise to Noah, set the rainbow in the sky that he would never again destroy the earth by water, never again destroy the earth by flood. The rainbow is around the throne of God. See, we're used to seeing the rainbow in our world, but John says, I saw the rainbow around the throne of God. That is, um, it's around his throne. So when we see the rainbow in our world, it intermittently reminds us of God's faithfulness to his covenant. But the rainbow is permanently fixed around the throne of God, meaning that it is a constant reminder to God of the covenant that he made to Noah. Literally, what John is seeing in this revelation is God setting a constant reminder to himself of the covenant that he made to Noah thousands of years ago. Isn't that crazy? That when you and I forget his covenants, God still remember. God is still remembering covenants he made tens of thousands of years ago. We forget you know, the promises we made to God last week. God said, I'm, I've set permanent reminders in the heavens. I am faithful to my, my covenant. Okay, now we're getting into it. Verse 4. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white robes. And they had crowns of gold on their heads. Around the throne. What is around the throne has been drawn to the throne, has been gathered to the throne. And what do we see around the throne? 24 elders. Now we got to talk about this for a minute. What are the 24? Who are, who are the 24 elders? Um, if you look at kind of the Greco-Roman world, Emperor Domitian at the time, whenever he went anywhere, he had a troop of 24 soldiers guarding him. So he always had a bodyguard of uh, 24 soldiers. So are these 24 elders... God's bodyguard? No. No. 
this, that's not what they are. Why? Because Domitian never sat his bodyguards on thrones around him. They stood around him to protect him. He sat, they stood. But here these 24 elders are sitting on thrones surrounding the throne of God. That's crazy that God puts these elders on thrones. So who are these elders? You know, there are many different scholarly interpretations of this passage, but here's what I think is the best interpretation. Of course, 24 equals 12 plus 12. Now we know how important numbers are in apocalyptic literature, especially in the book of Revelation. 12 plus 12. I believe the 24 elders represent the 12 tribes of Israel plus the 12 apostles of the Lamb. They are a picture of the totality of the redeemed community of God. They are the church. Remember, we said every time we see Jesus, we see the church. And just like in chapter 1, when John sees Jesus as the, the, the Son of Man, the heavenly Son of Man, he sees him in, in conjunction with the church, standing in the midst of seven golden lampstands, and he sees the church first. When he turns toward Jesus, he sees the church. Isn't that interesting? You know, we tend to think that the church is not important, that it's all about your individual relationship with Jesus Christ. And of course, we don't realize that we get that value from Western culture. We get that value from American culture. But actually in scripture, the church is vitally important. John looks to see Jesus and he sees the church. And now the second time, even in heaven, he's looking to find Jesus. And the first thing he sees is the church, the 24 elders surrounding the word, the, the throne of God, right? Now, uh, the fact that they're seated on thrones means that they have been given a share in the dominion and glory of Christ. They reign with him. And you must understand that your destiny as a believer of Jesus Christ is to reign with him, to be given a share of his dominion and glory. And there's ample evidence of that in Scripture. They had golden crowns on their head. They're crowned with all of the value of the earth and all of the wealth of the wicked has been transferred to the righteous. They wear the wealth of the earth as crowns upon their head. That's crazy, right? I mean, there's this promise that the wealth of the wicked will be given to the righteous, right? And blessed are the pure in heart for they shall inherit the earth. Right? There's all of these promises in scripture about the wealth of the seas will come to you. Right? The wealth of the Gentiles will come to you. These 24 elders are crowned with all of the, the wealth of earth. Golden crowns upon their head, which means they rule over the wealth of the earth. Now, that shouldn't get you too excited because that, you, you, know, you might interpret that as meaning we're about to ball out of control. But before you get too excited, you've got to jump down to verse 10. And what happens in verse 10... Actually, let's just jump there for a second because, oh, I don't even have verse 10. Okay, what happens in verse 10 is that these elders cast down their golden crowns before the throne of God. And they do it over and over and over again. I have verse 10 here in my notes. And, and what it says is what happens in verse 10 is that first, the, the living creatures, which we're going to meet in a moment, they explode with praise and thanksgiving to God. And then once the living creatures explode with praise and thanksgiving to God, uh, the elders cast down their crowns before the throne of God. And, um, but it says every time, I'm going to read this verse 9. 
And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne who lives forever, forever and ever, verse 10, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever. They cast their crowns down before the throne saying, worthy are you, Lord God, uh, to receive glory and honor and power. The question is, how can they cast down their crowns more than once? I mean, once they cast down their crowns, isn't that it? I mean, literally, they're casting down the wealth of the earth before the throne of, of God saying, you are worthy. We're not worthy of this. You are worthy of this. But it says every time the living creatures, and these living creatures are again and again and again, these living creatures again and again and again are offering this worship to God. And every time they do, the elders cast down their crowns. How can you cast down your crowns more than once? The implication here that every time the elders cast down their golden crowns before the Lamb or before the throne of God, God puts those crowns back on their heads. They get them back. Isn't that crazy? What is that an image of? That there is no way we could ever outgive God. And there's no way that we can surrender anything to God that He does not. That is, when we cast our golden crowns before the Lord, He recrowns us. And I can say, I can say that I've seen that again and again and again. And again, throughout my life. Let's keep going. Verse 5. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. This reminds us of Sinai in Exodus chapter 19, verse 16 through 19. When God comes and sits on Mount Sinai, when he reveals himself to the people of Israel after they came out of Egypt. And, and um, on that third day, right? The scripture says... Uh, there was thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud and a very loud trumpet sound and the mountain was all in smoke because the Lord had descended upon it in fire and the whole mountain quaked violently. So there's earthquakes and there's thunder and there's lightning and there's thick clouds of darkness and there's a blast of a trumpet and there's the voice of words, right? Uh, so this, this is what happens when God shows up, right? However... Uh, as we progress throughout the book, we're going to find that there's three different series of divine judgment upon the earth. There's the seven seals, which are about to be opened up in chapter six and seven. There's the seven trumpets that come later. Um, and then seven bowls. Okay, seven seals in chapter six through eight, seven trumpets, chapters 10 and 11, and then seven bowls, chapter 17 and 18. And these represent three series of judgments that God is going to pour out on the earth. But what's peculiar is that when the seventh of each of these series unfolds, the same thing happens. So in chapter 8, verse 5, when the seventh seal is open, the scripture says, and there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. Okay, In chapter 11, verse 19, when the seventh trumpet blasts, and there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, an earthquake, and great hail. And then in chapter 16, verse 18, when the seventh bowl of wrath is poured out, and there were noises and thunderings and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, such a mighty and great earthquake as had not occurred since men were on the earth. Okay? Now, here in chapter 4, verse 5, these lightnings and thunderings and voices, they come from the throne. Right? Uh, they represent turbulence, they represent chaos, and they represent conflict in the earth. And they all come from the throne. I'm going to say that again.
turbulence, chaos, and conflict in the earth come from the throne, right? They represent the way in which God is bringing about his ultimate plan, leading history to its finality, and bringing all of creation to its destiny in him. They come from the throne. That is, when we see turbulence, chaos, and conflict on the earth, they seem to us to be signs that God has lost control. But they are, in fact, signs of his presence, signs of his complete authority. And the beautiful thing, and here's, here's what I think would encourage us, they always show up at the end of the series, the seventh seal, the seventh trumpet, and the seventh bowl. So when you start seeing the lightning and hearing the thunder and feeling the earthquakes, you know that a series of God's judgment is coming to an end. Okay, Hold that thought. We're going to talk a lot about judgment in the coming weeks, but um, uh, John hasn't even gotten to it yet, so we're not going to get ahead of John. Okay, moving forward, John says there were seven lamps of fire that were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Seven spirits of God actually goes back to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Uh, this is what the medieval theologians referred to as the sevenfold spirit of God. Seven equals perfection, completion, fulfillment. And so the seven spirits of God, these are not seven gifts of the spirit or seven functions of the spirit, but the fullness of the Holy Spirit himself. Okay, I'm getting ahead of myself. One of the things I want to bring to our attention is that, remember I said that the throne is preeminent, right? Um, the throne is preeminent. Everything in this vision revolves around the throne, right? Everything, everything in this vision is pictured in its relation to the throne. So you've got before the throne, and you've got around the throne, and you've got from the throne, right? Like all of this stuff is happening in relation to the throne of God. And this is really the message of Revelation is that all of history, everything that is happening in history can be evaluated under the rubric of, of the relation to the throne. And really, at the end of the day, what is your relationship to the throne of God? Are you around the throne? Are you before the throne? Are you, are you proceeding from the throne? That is, everything has its place in relationship to the throne of God. All right, let's go on to verse 6. Before the throne, there was a sea of glass. I love this image here. There was a sea of glass like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes. Let's start with the sea of glass. What's the sea of glass? In every other place in the book of Revelation where the sea appears, it always represents the sum of all forces that seek to oppose the will of God. That is, the sea always represent historic forces that seek to oppose the will of God. You know, people in the first century, in the time when John was writing this revelation, they feared the sea because the sea was a living metaphor for chaos, for death, and for destruction. Leviathan, the great sea monster, the god of chaos lives there in the ancient world. That was what they believed. But here, before the throne, the sea is as smooth as glass, shiny as crystal. That which to us appears chaotic, threatening and dangerous to God 
It looks like a sea of glass, right? Um, that is, God has taken all of the chaos of the earth and he's made it an ornament in his throne room, kind of like a chandelier. He's taken all of the chaos and, and all of the worldly conflict, everything that would appear threatening to us, he just makes it an ornament in his throne room. Everything that feels like it is beyond control is right before the throne of God under complete control. And this reminds me of Jesus out on the sea with his disciples and the storm kicks up and Jesus is asleep in the stern of the boat. And the storm hits so hard the disciples despair even of life and they come to Jesus and they wake him up and say, Lord, don't you care that we perish? The storm looks so big to them, but it looks so little to Jesus. And, he's, and he looks at the, the, the wind and says, be quiet. And he looks at the waves and says, calm down, be still. And there's great calm. Why? Because that sea, that raging sea before the throne of God is a sea of glass. It's an ornament. Moving on, in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. So four uh, is an important number of the book of Revelation. Four is the number of creation. There's the, this ancient idea of the four corners of the earth and the four winds. Uh, these four living creatures, literally living ones, they represent the entire created order. Okay, we're going to see them again. And it says they're full of eyes in front and in back. So imagine they're just covered in eyes. They got eyes on the front, eyes on the back, eyes all around. They're just full of eyes. Why is creation depicted as being full of eyes? Uh, because of Psalm 19. The heavens are telling the glory of God. The firmament declares his handiwork. Uh, God has fitted creation itself with the ability to perceive and reflect his glory. The ability to discern the glory of its creator and to declare his glory to the furthest reaches of the universe. This is why the psalmist cries out, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 1 when he says, since the beginning of time, his invisible attributes have been clearly seen by that which is created so that men are without excuse. We have within us, every, not only every human being, but the animals and the sea and the sky we all have the innate ability to discern the glory of God, to know that we have been created. And this is why the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip ahead here because I've been talking for a long time and we haven't even seen Jesus yet, right? I mean, we should, we should kind of get to Jesus. So now we're going to jump to chapter 5, verse 1. Chapter 5. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. First of all, in the right hand of him who sits on the throne. The right hand is the hand of power. Whatever is in the right hand of God is under his power. And what God holds in his right hand is both an unstoppable force and an immovable object. Nothing can change, harm, or destroy or remove what is in God's right hand, okay? So the right hand is the hand of power, but the right hand is also the hand of favor, okay? You gotta get this, you gotta understand this clearly before you even move on. Whatever is in God's right hand is under his favor, okay? What God holds in his right hand is ultimately good and right and profitable 
and expedient. Okay? You got to keep that in mind. Very, very important because what we're going to find, what that scroll is going to do seems like a bad thing. But before we open up that scroll and understand what's in it, the first thing John shows us is that it's a good thing. Okay? The scroll is written inside and on the back. The scroll is full of writing. And what is written on the scroll is the sovereign plan of God for all of creation. What is written in the scroll is what God has determined that he will do since before the foundation of the world. It's God's plan. You and I don't get to speak into it. We don't get to critique it. We don't get to add our, our two cents. We don't get to review it. We don't get to approve it. Uh, we don't get to tweak it in any way, shape, or form. What God has written on that scroll, he's written before the foundation of the world. It's his plan for all time and eternity, and we do not get to change it in any way, shape, or form. He does not delegate either its writing or its implementation to anyone other than himself. The scroll represents God's sovereignty over all things. But there's a problem because it's sealed with seven seals. Remember the word set, the number seven is a very important number. Seven is the number of perfection and completion. Seven seals means that it is completely sealed. It means that, that it is sealed, that there's no one in the world who could possibly break those seals. The only way that that scroll is opened up is if the one who seals it opens it up. Okay? It's sealed with seven seals. And this is the great crisis of history. God's plan is completely good but it is also completely sealed. He has a good plan, but we'll never know it because it's completely and totally hidden from us. Verse two, then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and loose its seals? Who is worthy? You see, God in his sovereignty has determined that his will will only be revealed to the one who is worthy. And so the angel cries out, who is worthy? Now, this is important contextually because uh, in the first century, all of the Caesars, whenever the, one of the Caesars, the emperor of Rome, when the emperor of Rome would enter a city, the citizens of that city would cry out, you are worthy, you are worthy. When the emperor of Rome would enter the great hall, the senators would cry out, worthy, you are worthy. When an emperor of Rome would enter the arena, the citizens would cry out, you are worthy, you are worthy. They called him Dominus Terrarum, Lord of Earth, Dominus Mundi, Lord of the World. And they shouted, salvation belongs to you. Whenever they would see the emperor, salvation belongs to you. And from the earth, if you were to behold the spectacle of the emperor of Rome entering a city or entering the great hall, or entering an arena, you would be tempted to agree that no one on earth has so much authority that no one on earth has so much power as did the emperor of Rome. But now we will see whether that earthly authority translates into any authority in heaven. Now we will see whether the worthiness of Caesar on the earth has any value in the heavenly court. Verse 3, And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. No one was found worthy. Caesar was not worthy. Domitian was not worthy. 
No one was found worthy. No one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth, no one was worthy. The plan of God remained locked up in his own right hand. Salvation does not belong to Caesar. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Caesar is not the Lord of earth. God is the Lord of heaven and earth. Now look what happens here. John says, so I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll. I wept much. John is taken so fully into this drama that for a moment he forgets that he already knows the answer to this riddle. For a moment he forgets that Jesus is about to show up. For a moment he forgets that this is all about Jesus and Jesus is about to show up and do his thing. It's, it, John is taken so deeply into this drama that he becomes temporarily almost ignorant, at least emotionally. It reminds me of Jesus coming to Bethany after hearing that Lazarus had died, knowing what he was going to do, knowing that he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead, but yet he stops and looks into the eyes of Mary and Martha and sees their grief, and he weeps with them. He already knew that he was about to solve their problem. He already knew that he was about to dry the tears from their eyes. He already knew that he was about to fix their problems, but he stops, he empathizes with them so deeply that he weeps with them for a moment. And here in this vision, John is brought to such a place of empathy with all of creation that he weeps great tears of sorrow for an extended period of time. When he says, I wept much, it means for an extended period of time. He stood in heaven and he wept and he wept and he wept and he wailed and he cried. This is a catastrophe. This is a disaster. All is lost without the contents of that scroll. If we don't get the plan of God for our lives, we're doomed. History is doomed. Humankind is doomed. No one will ever know the power and favor that reside within the scroll of the right, in the right hand of him who sits on the throne. So we're on our own. We're left to our own devices. And thus there's no salvation. We're left to fend for ourselves. And thus we will all surely perish. When John weeps, he weeps for those who are living without God those who are living in a state of isolation from God, those who are living their lives without knowing the plan of God for their lives, without the scroll being opened, without understanding that God has a divine purpose for their lives, John is weeping because in this vision he sees all of history excluded from the good plan that God has for the world and for human life. You know, some of you, you've, in your minds, you've rushed ahead too quickly and you've discovered that the opening of the seven seals releases seven series, seven forms of judgment. And you're so used to believing that Revelation is a scary book that in our minds, and I include myself in this, it's easy for us to hope that the seals never open or to hope at least that when they open, they're not opened within our lifetime. But John doesn't agree with you. The prospect of the scrolls never opening causes him deep 
sorrow. All is lost. We desperately need the scroll to open. Everything depends upon the scroll opening. History is doomed if that scroll doesn't open, and it seems the opposite. It seems that history is doomed because the scroll hope opens, but in actuality, it's the opposite. And here is the key that we, we miss continually when we read the book of Revelation. I said this last Sunday, and I'll say it every week until we get it. There's only one crisis in the book of Revelation, only one. The only crisis, the only crisis is the refusal to repent. That's the only crisis. The clear message of the book of Revelation from beginning to end is that if you repent, everything's going to be all right. But if you don't repent, it's going to be all bad. That's it. That's Revelation in a nutshell. God is calling. God is reaching. But the only crisis, the crisis is not the scrolls. The crisis is simply our refusal to repent. So John is weeping. But one of the elders, remember the elders represent the church. A member of the church pulls him out of his weeping. It could have been an angel, but it's not. It's the church. It's the church that's been given the glory of proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here one of the elders comes to John and proclaims the gospel to him in the midst of a vision. And the gospel is the good news. And here's the good news, that the scroll will not ultimately remain closed. Why? Because the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll. Don't weep. Behold, stop crying and open your eyes. You know, many of us have been weeping because there's something hidden, something that we want God to reveal that's hidden. But God says today, stop crying and open your eyes. Stop mourning the stuff that's fallen apart in your lives and open your eyes. Behold, look, the lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed, has conquered. The lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed. This is what by the Holy Spirit John is proclaiming to the churches in Asia Minor who are living under the tyranny of Domitian. To the early Christians of the first century who seem to be living defeated lives, 40,000 of them have been massacred. Their property is being confiscated. They're being thrown in prison. They're being harassed by Roman soldiers. And it's all arbitrary. It could happen at any moment to any one of them. And they have no control. They seem to be defeated. And the gospel that's preached to them is, Stop crying! Behold! The lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed. You are not serving a defeated Lord. You are serving a victorious Lord. You are serving a conquering king. The lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed. This message to the early church would be a message of victory in the midst of what seems to be defeat. John, don't cry. Look. Don't cry. Behold. And so John, he opens his eyes and he looks. And I looked and behold, John, don't cry. Behold, John says, and I looked and behold. And here's the interesting thing. John turns toward the throne expecting to see a lion 
a conquering lion, a roaring, conquering, victorious, powerful lion, probably with Domitian's head in his mouth. <laughs> right? I mean, he's expecting to see ah, the power of God. And what does he see? And behold, and here's where we're going to see Jesus. In the midst of the throne, in the middle of the throne, all up in the throne. This is the second time Jesus appears in the midst of something. And it's actually the last time in the book of Revelation that Jesus appears in the midst of something. You only find Jesus in the midst of two things. One, the church. And two, the throne. He's all up in the church. And he's all up in the throne. And behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders... Here he appears in the midst of the throne, in the midst of the four living creatures, which represents all of creation, and in the midst of the elders, which represents the redeemed community, the church. Stood a lamb as though it had been slain. He looks for a lion and he sees a lamb. Seems to be a complete contradiction. I looked for a conquering lion and I saw a slain lamb. A lamb whose fleece was covered in blood and had a, a sword wound, a pierce, had been pierced. I looked for a conquering Lord and I found a slain lamb. What does this mean? It means that the power of his victory is in his cross. It means that what looked like his greatest moment of defeat was actually, what looked like his greatest moment of defeat was actually history's greatest moment of victory. The greatest victory that was ever won was won by Jesus on the cross. Because it seemed that he was a public spectacle, but what he actually did on the cross was triumph over powers and principalities, making a public spectacle of them. It means that the kingdom and authority and power of Jesus comes from a completely different direction than the kingdoms of this world. He is the only conquering king in history who conquers by the power of his sacrifice. And he said, the lamb had seven horns. The horn in biblical times represented power, authority. Seven is the number of completion, perfection. He's got perfect authority. He's been slain, but he's got perfect authority. Meaning nobody took his life from him. He had the power to lay it down and he had the power to take it up again. And he's got seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He sees perfectly. He's got perfect vision. He sees all things. Isn't it interesting that the four living creatures have eyes all over, in the front and in the back, and it says they're covered with eyes within and without, meaning they got eyes inside. I don't know how that works. But Jesus has seven eyes. In the book of Revelation, seven is more than many. The beasts might have had Hundreds of eyes, but Jesus had seven. Seven eyes is more than hundreds of eyes. Why? Because seven is perfection. The many eyes of the living creatures means that they can see the glory of God. 
But the seven eyes of Jesus means he sees everything, everyone, in all times and in all places. Let's move on. Verse 7. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Verse 8. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. Worthy. You are worthy. This is the burden of the book of Revelation. You are worthy. You know what that word worthy means? That word worthy literally means weighty. Oxios is the Greek term. It means that which draws down the scale. In the ancient world, if you wanted to know the value, if you had gold and you wanted to know the value of that gold, you put it on the scale and the weight of the gold, how far down it drew down the scale, its weightiness determined its value. If you had a lot of gold, it drew the scale down further than if you had a little gold. You are worthy. This is the message of Revelation. Jesus is worthy. Worthy is the lamb. He's weighty, which means if you wanted to estimate his value and you put him on a scale, he would draw the scale all the way down. This word worthy is the heart of the message of Revelation chapter 5. The burden of Revelation chapter 5 is worthiness. 5.2, who is worthy? 5.4, no one is worthy. 5.9, you are worthy. 5.12, worthy is the Lamb. This is the great revelation of chapters 4 and 5. Worthy is the Lamb. He is the only one worthy to unlock the mystery of God's divine plan for your life. He takes the scroll. He opens the book. He reveals the mystery of God's purpose and God's plan for your life. You know, most of us want to know what this means for the end of the age. When will the Antichrist come? When will the rapture come? When will the tribulation come? You know, you're missing the point. The point is that the Lamb is worthy, not only of the scroll, but of your life. You see, if you haven't entrusted your life to the Lamb, you really don't want to know about the Antichrist and the beast and the tribulation and the rapture and the millennium, the final judgment. I would recommend that you not press any further into those things. 
if you can't cry out worthy as the lamb with the community of the redeemed, those things aren't going to work out too well for you. But if you've trusted him with your life, with your destiny, with your gifts, and with your talents, with your desires, with your satisfaction, with your future, with your wealth, with your relationships, and with your family. If in your heart there's no holds barred and your heart declares freely, worthy is the Lamb, worthy to receive not only glory and honor and dominion and power, but to receive my life. This is why they cast down their crowns before the Lamb, because He's worthy to receive it all. That song says, you are worthy of it all. For from you all are, are all things, and to you are all things. You deserve the glory. The burden of these chapters is the echo of the cry of heaven in the earth. Worthy is the Lamb. The burden of these chapters is to invite us to join our voices with the chorus of the redeemed, with the chorus of heaven and earth. Worthy is the Lamb. He is worthy. He is worthy to lead my life, to run my life, to determine my life. I have been bought with a price and I am not my own. You see, the burden of the book of Revelation is complete and total surrender to God. And if there's something in you that fears surrender to God, then you have great cause to be afraid as we continue through this book. But we've gotten to chapter 5 and we haven't seen any judgment yet. And we haven't seen any plagues yet. And we haven't seen you know, anything, anything bad happen. Why? Because in these first five chapters, John is trying to deal with our hearts. And some of you, your hearts are not ready to learn about the beast and the Antichrist. Because you still got a little of the Antichrist in you. Because at the heart, the spirit of Antichrist is simply denying the worthiness of Jesus. And that denial of the worthiness of Jesus is reflected in every human refusal to submit to him, even now. That if there's any part of my heart that does not submit to him, even now, that spirit of Antichrist is keeping me out of the kingdom. I, I just want to, I want to exhort you today to open your heart, to join your voice with that heavenly chorus, worthy is the Lamb. It's about our surrender. I'm telling you that the only crisis in the book of Revelation is the refusal to repent. And that if you and I would repent, if we would walk in repentance, if we walk all the way through the book of Revelation with that heart that says, Lord, I repent, then what awaits us are the promises of the book, not the plagues of it. The promises, not the plagues. God has destined you for the promises. He has not destined you for the plagues. But all you have to do is repent. You have no chance of figuring it out on your own. You have no chance without Jesus that scroll remains locked up in the right hand of him who sits on the throne it never opens 
best good for your life is written in that scroll, God's plan. If you're resisting him because you think you have some plan that's better than God's plan, you've got some desire for your life that's better than God's desire for your life, let me tell you something, friend, you have no clue. You have no clue what even would satisfy you. You might be, achieve every form of success that your heart desires and become like Alexander the Great who after conquering the known world at the end of his life said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? Life eternal life. It's the gift of the Lamb. He is worthy. And you know, sometimes I, like John, am brought to tears when I see people living outside of the will of God. When I walk through hardships, sometimes people ask me, how can you trust in a God who allows you to walk through this hardship? And I always respond, how can you walk through such a hardship without being strengthened by the presence of God? How do you make it? Surrender. I want you to bow your head and I want you to close your eyes and I want you to pray this prayer with me. And I'm going to invite you to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, I pray right now for each and every one under the sound of my voice. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would unlock the hesitation to surrender in every heart, in every heart and in every soul. Everything in us that would say, I still want my own way and I still want my own plan. Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit, unlock that right now and give us a spirit of surrender. That from the depths of our heart, we would cry out, worthy is the lamb. He's worthy. He's worthy to receive the offering of my life. He'll do with it what I could never do with it. He will fulfill what I could never fulfill. His plan is greater than mine. His way is greater than mine. Worthy is the Lamb. Father, I pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would release in every heart the declaration that the Lamb, the Lamb is worthy. And right now, if you're here today, and you're listening to the sound of my voice and you have not surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, I invite you to pray this simple prayer with me. Would you just stretch out your hand as I've stretched out mine and just look into my eyes and repeat these words with me. You're praying to the Father. Say, Father, I come to you in the name of your son, Jesus. And I confess that Jesus is worthy. He paid the price for my sin and he bought me with his blood. I surrender my life to you now in his holy name. I ask you to forgive me 
of all of my sin, of all of my rebellion, and of all of my turning away from you. I ask you to receive me as your son or daughter. Jesus, you are worthy. You are worthy of it all. I surrender to your plan for my life. In your holy name, amen. Amen. Amen and amen. If you prayed that prayer, I want to invite you just to drop a line in the chat right now saying, I prayed the prayer. And especially if you prayed it for the very first time, just drop it in the chat. Say, I prayed the prayer. And a link is being dropped into the chat right now. I'm going to ask you to click on that link and let us know that you prayed the prayer. Because let me tell you something. Every devil in hell is arrayed against you to get you to turn back on that commitment that you made to Jesus today. But if you have a body of believers around you to strengthen and encourage you, you can walk with Christ, not just as a momentary experience, but you can walk with him for the rest of your days. And I believe he is here by the power of his Holy Spirit to empower just that. Amen. Amen.